This week, for the first time, I'm going back to my roots to interview our latest guest. We'll be talking about gay adoption from a British perspective. Which, prior to me moving to the Netherlands, was the only perspective I knew. My name is Connor James, and you're listening to The Daddy Issue. start this journey I just assumed adoption was the way to go. I'm from the UK where roughly 6,000 children need to be adopted every single year and because of this high number I was no stranger to adverts from the government and adoption agencies encouraging people to become adoptive or even foster parents. In 2005 adoption was opened up to non-married and same-sex couples. In fact you can even adopt as a single parent in the UK. When I moved to Holland it was a big shock to find that domestic adoption was in single digit figures and parents would have to adopt from abroad. I just assumed the numbers would be proportionate to the Dutch population size. But something is different in Holland, something we'll explore later on in the show. When it came to finding a guest to talk about adoption with, well, I didn't have to look very far. Ben, a friend and ex-colleague of mine, became a parent for adoption last year with his husband. So, today, Ben is going to lift the lid on what it's like to become an adoptive parent in the UK, discussing the processes, terms, and realities of adoptive parenthood for queer British residents. So Ben, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, let's just get straight into it. From what age did you want to be a father? Wow. Um, quite early on. So probably, I'd say mid-twenties, still in my party days, but I've always had a lot of kids around in my family. So there's a, a big age difference between me and my half-brother. Um, he was a little baby when I was a teenager. Um, and yeah, my sisters have had kids sort of over the last 10 years onwards. So yeah, I've, I've wanted a, a part of that action. Uh, for some time be a dad myself uh, whether that was on my own or or as part of a couple yeah i actually you know one of the first things you told me was that you want to be a father and i have no idea how we got into that subject because i think we were drinking coffee in our work offices and <laughs> i think you were really passionate about it yeah. but when you decided you know that you want to be a father mm. um did you decide also then how like was was adoption already something that was front and center for you yeah, I've got a few friends who had adopted. One friend from sixth form, she actually worked within uh, social work uh, for adoption services locally. So I'd already got a bit of a, an eye in the back door, as it were, as to what the situation was like for kids, certainly in the area I'm in, here in the UK, at Stoke-on-Trent. There's a lot of kids in the system sort of waiting, as it were. And because I've got quite a, a big family with sort of brothers, sisters, half-brothers, um, I knew that our our genes would carry on and there'd be no sort of, I was never precious over having DNA passed down in my case. Yeah, it was always, it was always about adoption for me. Yeah, so you're married. Yeah. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Not for very long, young married couple. Yeah. But how, I was wondering, like, 
I found this really difficult to talk about with my boyfriend. And we've been together for a long time. And it was kind of an awkward thing because you feel like, you know, we have this perfect relationship. Mm -hmm. And am I going to throw this bowl into the china shop, so to speak, that's going to ruin that by asking something which maybe the other person doesn't want? So how did you approach this? with your your now husband i'm guessing you maybe talked about this early on yeah i mean like i say it's it's a it's a, a big thing it's not like this is my favorite meal do you like it don't you like it it's 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 a massive impact on any relationship marriage or otherwise so i was quite lucky uh, jimmy my husband we discussed family having kids quite early on because we've both got quite big families we've, we've both got several siblings that have got kids nieces and nephews running around all of similar age so as we were getting to know each other and having those chats around family, I can't remember the specific conversation, but certainly from those first couple of months, we were both very clear that, yeah, we want to be parents ourselves at some point. Obviously, at that point, we weren't sort of saying we're going to be parents together. It was just very much, a, I, I would like to be a parent at some point in my life. I'd actually looked into doing adoption solo a couple of years before meeting Jimmy. So I'd already sort of, got my plans in motion or get it, getting a bit yeah. of research into it definitely and there had been previous relationships prior to Jimmy that had broken down on the basis that they didn't want to have kids they, they were quite happy having you know, that, that single lifestyle or the, the the extra money and income and ability just to have dogs instead and, and I, I yeah. wanted that sort of extra that extra mile so yeah yeah it is a massive conversation to have with your partner but I think the, the most, more natural you can make it and not make it into like this big sort of let's have a sit down and have a, a serious conversation. If you can bring it into the chat a bit more organically, it definitely helps to sort of diffuse any tensions, I'd say. Well, that's a tricky thing, right? I, I feel maybe I, I'm not calling you old, by the way. Older? Um, um, but slightly you're older. older. Yeah, you're, you're, you're slightly older than me. <laughs> so like... Uh, yeah, I can say as as a young gay guy, this wasn't something on my radar or my boyfriend's radar when we got together. Yeah. Because on one hand, we're both young and selfish gay people, yeah. so we're just having a good time. But on the other hand, um, society doesn't even really make this an option for you. Like exactly. you don't hear about it. Uh, so I can imagine maybe it's a little bit. I'm not gonna say easier, but I, I assume for you both, as you're both a little bit older and more mature, I guess this is something that comes a little more naturally into these conversations. Yeah. You're thinking about settling down and stuff like that. I think we, we both, me and Jimmy, you know, in, in different senses, um, had gotten a lot of our single party lifestyle out of the way. You know, we weren't going overboard. Um, but Jimmy was very much into like traveling America and his, his rock and, and country Western sort of bands and tours and gigs. And he was very, very much into doing that social aspect of thing with him, all of his mates and I was sort of, you know, partying in Europe and up and down the UK, being very much a, a frivolous. I think, from what you, like you were saying, as queer people, you feel like sometimes you're starting your life perhaps a little bit later than a lot of heteronormative people and, and couples. So they almost perhaps go through school and college and university and they their early 20s, mid 20s, with perhaps a set idea of, when they'd like to have a family. For me, when I was in my 20s, early 20s, adoption wasn't even legally an option. So it was never anything that was on the plate. Same for marriage. I, I, I never wanted to be married because it was something that I couldn't attain anyway unless I was marrying a woman. Um, so for me, that was always very much non, non-conscious. non Yeah, I think I was 18 when 
gay marriage. Yeah, I was eight, yeah, maybe even seventeen. I, I no, I totally agree. When I was in university, I had straight friends who were tech kind of thinking, okay, I have a boyfriend. We're gonna graduate. Yeah, gonna buy a house. Gonna get a dog. Then a baby. I can plan. I was still figuring ahead. out what I was. Yeah, I had no. I was trying to figure my identity out. Yeah, it's a lot of people. You know, they can plan ahead, and we're not sort of we're not coming to a terms with ourselves in a lot of cases. And so it's not with every case, obviously. There are, and as as time goes on, thankfully you see people coming to terms with their identity way, way younger than they ever did. And they've, they've had all these changes come before them. I was very much sort of around as the changes were still forming. And so I didn't start coming into my own until in sort of early 20s. Then I had all of my teenage years during my 20s up to my early 30s. And then it was sort of, right, legally I can have kids now if I wanted to adopt. So... I've always enjoyed babysitting or helping friends do sort of childcare, you know, any sort of family gatherings. The kids always seem to sort of gravitate towards Fun Uncle Ben. Yeah, Fun Uncle Ben. Yeah, it always seemed like a natural um, progression to to be able to to have my own kids and, and my own family. If we move on to the adoption process then, do you know from your head when it was possible for queer people to adopt? Off the top, I'm sure it was sort of 2005 in the UK, I think. So it's not long ago. Really. Not, not massive, no. So I, I would still have, you know, post-university post for me. But um, I, I remember more around things like Section 28 being sort of abolished in the UK far more than I ever did around sort of gay marriage, gay adoption. So I think for me, it almost became sort of this option that, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I could adopt? Oh, I can actually adopt because I had friends that had done it. You know, some of the first people in the UK to adopt. Uh, one of them was was my friend Kelly, who works within sort of social services. And seeing her journey very much out of the limelight because she was a friend from school who granted I didn't see very often but it's not like all that information was available on social media as to where her daughter you know their their history together or or how they went through their adoption journey um it, it was weird because it was almost like this unspoken secret of, of their adopt they, they must have adopted or surrogated or there, there was no sort of answers and they're also not the sort of questions that you necessarily want to be asking people that you, you're not too close to yeah it's only sort of been in the last five years when, when you do start verbalising yourself, oh, I'd love to become a dad or I can't wait to adopt myself. It's only when you start to sort of verbalise yourself and, and, and put it out there that you want to become a parent. That's when you suddenly get this slew of friends, contacts, colleagues, people that you haven't heard from for years that are just on Facebook will message you and say, hey, we adopted, we, we fostered. If you've got any questions, let us know because we know that the information isn't necessarily always out there or there's so much information. You can get flooded. I'm going to step back a second as well. You mentioned Section 28. Mm. I was wondering if you could explain what that is for our listeners who are maybe a little bit too young to yeah. know about it, or international as well. So very, very light version of it. It, it was legislation was brought into the UK, sort of a very, very conservative government, let's, let's say, around sort of Thatcher's time, whereby the promotion of homosexuality, as they called it, was not allowed in the classroom. So they were not allowed, teachers were not allowed to discuss or mention um, homosexual relationships, lifestyles, people um, to kids. 
which it sounded very much sort of a, a brainwashing thing of like if you if you teach kids about homosexuals that that are historical Alan Turing, for example, then they will become gay themselves. It was this very sort of backwards mindset of you protect the kids from this information and they won't end up being led down this path. But it also damaged a lot of kids because they didn't have the information to hand when they started to sort of come to terms with their own identity, their own sexuality feelings. You know, they had the questions themselves. And if, even if they wanted to ask a teacher in sort of confidence, the teacher couldn't legally sort of discuss or help or offer support to those sort of questions or answer those sort of questions and it, it was very damaging and, and section 28 when that was lifted I can remember being in my teens and it was like a massive sort of a massive win for the UK yeah. because they'd sort of abolished this very backwards way of thinking and it wasn't about pushing a, an agenda or a lifestyle but very much being able to answer those questions and, and make that information available should it be required and obviously as time's gone on they've, they've started to bring in like lgbt history within the classroom in, in a lot of schools which is amazing is that, is that a subject now in uk school uh, a lot of the uk schools so that, you know if they're looking at like alan turing when they're sort of discussing you know world war and co-breaking and stuff and alan turing oh and alan turing this was his life and this is some of his history you know the, the way that he was prosecuted and uh, chemically castrated and took his own life all because of his identity and, and his being queer yeah it's mad because i couldn't imagine being in the classroom nowadays like my nieces and nephews are in these classrooms now and they get to sort of learn about gay history where pride comes from and things like that just as part of generic history lessons as they would the, the tudors the edwardians and and all the That's other incredible all the other use useful stuff that you learn about in history i don't i'm just looking i'm just googling quickly uh because i want to say something but i want to make sure i have the date right um section yeah it was tourism free yeah it was appeal it was repealed in um yeah well, i want to say um, i i um the listeners can can know this i just cheated and had to google the <laughs> date of section 28 i wanted to make sure i answers correctly but i went to school before this was repealed more well, my primary school but i know that even though this was repealed my secondary school had a very much don't ask don't tell policy i had i had gay teachers who were quite calm yeah so it was presenting they, yeah. They, 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 yeah they they didn't they didn't hide the fact that they were queer but if you asked them there was just instant silence they they, they wouldn't talk about it yeah. and i think they were scared to talk about it because they were scared maybe the kids would go home and say hey i have a gay teacher and uh in our school we had a very influential board of like parents who were pretty good at getting people um fired yeah if they weren't doing a good job like the head teachers and stuff but uh it was pretty damaging well you know yourself yeah. damaging because i never learned about queer life we only learn about it in sexual um health and when i say i learned about in sexual health we learned how to put a condom Lost. on a cucumber yeah. which is a vital skill you know because um every penis is shaped like a exactly. cucumber and green um, yeah uh <laughs> if i've just described um uh your penis um please i don't know if i'm gonna put this in the podcast please go see a doctor uh, <laughs> um but there was there was no education on this at all, yeah. so it had a huge impact on um, you and I think our generation in general. We had to figure our identity yeah. out when we had the freedom to do that. For me, that was university. For everybody, it's different. It's 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 weird because, like, say, if, if I had the opportunity to learn half of what I picked up from, you know, when when I was late teens, Queer as Folk was a, a, a new TV series over here on Channel Four, and it was like everyone was talking about it because there's gay people having sex on the television and they're, they're very explicit about it. It's not so, you know, it's, 
and it, it wasn't like it was all there in your face, but you were following the lifestyles. Yes, the, the, the sex was part of it, but they were also themselves having kids and um, you know, having you know, talk about their jobs and their geeky obsessions. And, and it, was, it was an eye-opener and having to learn about a lot of how, what I was feeling at the time and not being able to talk to anyone about through a, a TV show that I had to secretly record at 10 o'clock every evening um, at, at my parents' house. And then nightclubs, you know, sneaking out to nightclubs at 17 and, and finding out about a lot, lot of it that way is sort of, let's say, it's around sexual identity as opposed to the emotional and the historical side of it all. And and that's where I think you start, certainly for my generation, people start to, to find their footing in their late teens, early 20s, mid-20s in some cases. My husband didn't come out until he was 36 because he lived in a little village here in the UK that, not necessarily secular or backwards, but there wasn't, you know, the nightlife there, the bars, the accessibility, the social stuff. He would be the only, for want of a better term, gay in the village. And, And that was a massive thing for, for his life he hasn't had boyfriends he didn't have ex-boyfriends he didn't have the opportunities to sort of do the big gay holidays and pride like his, his first pride parade was was with me um when we were together so is mine yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> it, it was through through Vodafone was his first pride and his first access into that world um prior to that had been very much sort of under the radar so it's it's mad to see how that changes generation to generation and we're not talking like 20 years difference five years and 10 years difference is is like massive changes oh it's crazy i've been trying to explain this to my my dutch friends and colleagues that when i was growing up the only reference to gay people i had was literally you just said doing the gay in the village yeah. was a uh, matt lucas on little britain yeah. and i don't even remember matt lucas's sexuality ever being discussed no. openly or publicly at all so i was terrified because there's a matt lucas is a sketch it's hilarious you should look on youtube um as a very stereotypical presenting gay person in a small village in wales which is part of the united kingdom yes. but that terrified me because i did not want to be that character yeah. uh, and that's all i knew at that point so yeah it, it's really weird how it's changed and now my younger sister she's all like t- tells me about gen- being gender fluid and like you shouldn't assume pronouns and it's a like it makes me really uh jealous sometimes yeah. that they're so open-minded jealous but but proud like you you, you yeah. feel like yeah, brilliant. It's so good that they don't have to, you know, my, my nieces and nephews haven't got to go through that same sort of finding their way. And, then, you know, not just in terms of of sort of queer uh, questions that they may have, but all sorts of identifiable questions that they may have around mental health. That's another brilliant one that's sort of coming to the, the forefront and being talked about as a more important thing, way more than it ever was when I was, yeah. I was in school and, and a kid. Um, so yeah, it's 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 cool. You, you feel a little bit like FOMO, like you've missed out. But yeah, chuffed that they haven't got to have the same battle. I think we can say the UK is quite conservative culturally, mm. but when it does move, it drags its heels, but then it jumps. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like it, I remember like homophobia was just a daily occurrence when I was young. 
when I was a late teen. And uh, I think I kissed my boyfriend in the middle of Newcastle City Centre a few years ago, five or six years ago. I was young. This little lady said, get a room. And I remember said, yeah, we have a travel lodge. And she just burst out laughing. And it was like, it was weird to have that kind of... Diffusion. Yeah, this this interaction with somebody who would probably have been quite homophobic, if, if I'm being stereotypical, but yeah. likely would have been more homophobic. So it's, I, I, yeah, it's really nice to see, compared to the Dutch attitude, which has been pretty... So that homophobia exists here, but I think uh, it's a little bit more relaxed maybe than the UK because they did the whole gay marriage thing first. No, this isn't an advertisement break. I'm not going to try and sell you a mattress yet, but I am going to ask you to rate and review this podcast on your podcasting app, as well as subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Not only will you get a little notification when a new episode drops, but you'll help increase our visibility too. If you really want to keep on top of the show, then you should follow us on social media. We're available on Instagram at the Daddy Issue Pod, Twitter at Daddy Issue Pod, and you can find us on Facebook too by searching for The Daddy Issue. All of these links are available on our website too, which is thedaddyissue.org. Thank you so much for your support. Now, back to this week's episode. Anyway, I'm I'm sorry for the sidetrack. Yeah. Uh, when we let's let's get back to the adoption before people think, hey, what podcast <laughs> am I listening to? Um, you are still listening to the Daddy Issue, uh, <laughs> um, but I was wondering, um, what is the situation in the UK when you come to adoption? Now? Like, is there a huge need or shortage even of adoptive? prospective adoptive parents? Yeah. So the, the UK is is quite split up with regards. You don't have sort of a central adoption agency. It's very much like a, you have your local adoption agencies. So we're going through our local council here in Stoke-on-Trent. There are more kids waiting for placement in fostering adoption yeah. in Stoke-on-Trent than there are in many other areas of the country. Um, I wouldn't say that we're necessarily the highest, but we're certainly up there with sort of top five um, off the top of my head. But certainly from when we were looking at um, adopting so you see billboards around the city and those billboards aren't just aimed at straight cis couples they are you know they, they include families that are gay lesbian single older younger they're very much sort of open to anyone applying when when i was first looking into adoption i rent so i in my head had formed this idea that you had to be a homeowner you had to be married you had to have like say certain age uh, fall into a certain yeah, or a salary group. or something. Yeah, and 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 I had this sort of tick tick checkbox idea in my head that I had to meet all of these criteria, and you don't at all. Um, as long as you can provide a loving, safe environment for your your kid, your potential kid, then they will consider you and 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 put you through sort of preparation training. And that training's free, right? It's completely. Yeah. Uh, for, for, yeah. We we've not had to pay for anything. We've we've had. Um, I mean, you know, besides the fact that we have NHS over here, we still had a medical, a, a full sort of medical. Me and my husband had to sort of do that as part of our um, checks, but we didn't have yeah. to pay anything for it. Like the, the adoption agency pick up that, that bill for you. Okay. Um, yeah, it's probably good to say to people who are listening that in the UK, healthcare is free. Yeah. I miss that a lot. I live in the Netherlands. We have a different healthcare system here. But some stuff, like the medical test that you, that you just mentioned, yeah. wouldn't be like a necessary treatment, so you sometimes have to pay anyway. Yeah, sorry. and th- things like <laughs> dental checks, uh, we didn't have to do on ourselves, but you know, if we would have had to do like a, a dentist visit, which I'm not an HS dentist registered, so I would have had to pay for that. They would have picked that bill up. So 
uh, yeah, everything that we've done, and we've we've done uh, pediatric first aid courses, we've done psychological training, you know, a lot of stuff around behavioural techniques and and management. So it's it's been intense. Like I felt like I've gone back to full time education. For, it's like daddy know, boot camp. Basically. Yeah, we we did sort of January through to September for us. We 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 started our um, adoption prep training sort of as lockdown was starting well certainly as coronavirus was starting to rear its head so um prep is, is split into three three groups you've got um initial prep which is sort of your this is what adoption is do you think you can cope your second part is right this is how you would manage um certain things that may come up from your child once they are sort of placed with you, whether it's sort of behavioural or uh, medical, um, and also you know the history around adoption, what what's expected of you, and then part three is your panel, which is where you sort of sit in front of the professionals and sort of put your case forward to say that we are or I am uh, fit to adopt, and they get to sort of that ask sounds questions. intense. It is. It's. I mean, it's it sounds a lot. It's a lot of information to take in, and sometimes there are evenings when you're sort of doing your your night case studies and stuff, and you think, oh, I'm just tired now, which looking back is nowhere near as tired as I am nowadays. Um, but it's it's good because on the flip side, a lot of people who are having kids, you know, their own kids through through sort of natural conception, I want to say, or normal conception, I'm not sure. Well, they didn't get this. I can imagine that there's people listening who maybe are heterosexual. Uh, I think I would have loved yeah. to have this training you were kind of like, sisters, i'm not well, gonna say super parent but yeah they, they were like if, if we had a half of this information when i had my first kid second kid amazing there, there was there was couples in our course who had had children previously wanted to adopt further children and, and with our within our friends network we have we have friends who adopted 10 years ago and they said if they knew half of the stuff that they had on prep training for, for the for the kids that they conceived naturally um then, then they would have been way more prepared to some of the the curveballs you get uh, being a parent. Well, basic stuff: child reanimation, reanimating a, a child who maybe isn't breathing. Yeah. Like that is stuff. That is stuff of my mother's nightmares. Yeah. She was so paranoid about this, like choking and stuff. Like, why aren't we taught this anyway? Exactly. <laughs> and and you know, most most couples who are having kids will have in the UK very sort of minimal pre and postnatal appointments, and you are very much put out there and, and made to sort of find out for yourself and make it up as you yeah. go along which granted we've been doing that for generations thousands of years but having these extra skills definitely help and it, and it helps to sort of reaffirm that yes you you are doing the right thing and you are ready to do this and the panel although it sounds like a really intense job interview in our case we had 10 questions given to us the day before mm. as to what we'd be asked on the day and those varied from what would you do in x situation to uh, ben, you don't drive at the moment. Do you think that'll become an issue? And you know, I answered that with I'm going through driving lessons. So you 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 have the opportunity to almost sort of rehearse what those questions and answers are going to be. They're not there to sort of try yeah. and catch you out. They're there just to officially assess and say yes, you are good to go. You are good to adopt. So that's why you got your driving license. I now know. Still waiting. So we we I'm yeah, still, still still learning because lockdown. Uh, Miss Rona reared her head and stopped me from getting in that car. So. Oh, you're not missing out on much. Parallel turns are, are not nice. Exactly. I'm relying on the husband to do all the driving for now. I, I just entertain by mirrors the kids in the back. 
but it sounds like a pretty well thought out process i'm a little bit jealous we have um similar stuff in the netherlands i i can't tell you much because i haven't looked into it very mm. much but for some of our adoption agencies you have to pay for this it's quite a lot yeah. of money like you're talking maybe three thousand euros because of adoption how it works in the netherlands it's mostly overseas but if we think about then you've gone through all this uh and i'm assuming you got approved for adoption after this kind of this boot camp yeah period. yeah yeah so we we started we, we initially approached them july 2019 and, and in the mm. UK, what they try to do is say, wait six months after any big ticket items. So anything like marriage, uh, a divorce, a big house move, a big death in the family, or in our case, it was honeymoon. We were going on our honeymoon in January 2020. So they said, basically, come back after your honeymoon and we'll go straight into prep training, which is what we did. And end of January, we, we came yeah. back fully recharged and, and sort of set to go after having our I was spoiling in the sun. So, yeah, we... I think we can say it was the best planned honeymoon ever. <sighs> like January 2020, the before time. Exactly. The before before end times, when, when sun was an option for us in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then you approved. And I was wondering um, if you can walk me through then, step by step, the adoption process. Yeah. So, um, after, after our panel, so your panel is basically made up of up to 12 people anything from teachers, doctors, social workers, and, and, and child psychologists, professionals, they get an opportunity to ask you the questions and you sort of answer them. In our case, it was done digitally because we were in lockdown. You would usually be sat in person in front of a literal panel. And for us, we we passed panel there and then. They, they sort of said, we'll reconvene and let you know when we're ready to give you an answer later on today. And within five minutes, they're like, right, get back on. We're, we're ready for you. So it was... We were very lucky in that it was like a, a given. We, we would, we'd passed with flying colours. Um, step one, complete. So that was done, yeah, <laughs> tick. Um, as it so happened, we had already been considered for a match prior to panel, which happens quite a lot. Um, so sometimes because obviously your social work is going through building up your case, your story, as it were, um, over a period of like nine months, they may see a case come forward uh, you know, children or a family come forward and they think, well, we'll earmark those for Ben when, when they pass panel. But we literally came out of that panel call, got a call from our social worker, and I said, right, we, we've actually had a match for you for, for the last couple of months. And they gave us a profile for two children who initially looked like a great match, but then you start getting sort of background on the actual case itself. And we found, unfortunately, for our first match, that wasn't actually a true match. There, there were a couple of medical things that were quite prohibitive to what me and Jimmy could physically be, be able to sort of manage as, as time mm. went on. Because as you say, we are a slightly older couple, cough approaching 40. Um, <laughs> but by the time that these these medical issues came forward, we would be, I'd be in my 50s, Jimmy would be in his 60s. And it's it's prohibitive as to what we could and couldn't do. And it's not fair on yeah. children, first and foremost. It sounds reasonable. Uh, yeah. And also wasn't, you know, something that we, we'd be able to manage ourselves. So it was it was something we had to make a very difficult decision over because we had like four days. You know, we, we found out on the Friday, which is when we finished panel, got matched. We had four days and found out on the Tuesday this sort of medical stuff that had come forward and our social worker backed our decision of like, we can't go ahead with this match because um, of the, the medical history there. And it obviously worked out because then 
come November, we we had our match for the family we do have now. Um, so that would never have happened if, if we'd have gone for, for the initial one. Yeah, so step two, tick, you got matched. Step two, tick. So yeah, in, in the November, we got um, a visit from our social worker and they sat us down and one of the options that me and Jimmy had, had put ourselves forward for was siblings. We said that we were very much up for siblings. Um, the other thing that me and Jimmy had done is is go through fostering training as well because we wanted to do the foster for adopt route. What's the difference between uh, a normal adoption route and the foster for adoption route? So in the UK, um, a an adoption order can't be placed on a child until they've been born and the adoption order has gone through the courts. So timeline-wise, child is born. Um, and if it is deemed that that child needs to go into care or, or is being put up for relinquishment, they will initially go to a foster placement. So there are hundreds of thousands of amazing foster families up and down the UK that will take in these cases on like sometimes within hours notice basis. Um, and they will look after those children until they're placed for adoption, whether that be a matter of weeks, months, years. That being said, because of the way that the courts have to go through everything and all these processes very officially, it can be months and months and months and months before an adoption order is given. More often than not, it can be sort of nine to 18 months because you know, if, if parents don't want their children taken, both parents don't want their children taken from their care, they can fight it and go through all sorts of psychological uh, profiling and checks and what have you. So it, it delays, unfortunately, for the children. I mean, they, they're in foster placement. Sometimes they're in more than one foster placement, so they may actually travel between foster Moving families, yeah, yeah. which can create um, attachment issues and developmental issues. Um, and me and Jimmy had always stated from the start that we wanted a, a newborn or as, as young as possible for, for our family so that we'd get to have the experience of all those first to be able to sort of share the history with children as they grow up. Yeah. And also perhaps a little selfishly so that we had less chance of, of these sort of detachment issues and emotional hurdles that, that a lot of kids that go through foster care sometimes can have. Um, so we were matched with our little boy who at that point was eight months old um, in the November, end of November. And normally you'd be given sort of an introduction period of two weeks where you go and live with them at their foster families and sort of gently get introduced into their routine. So you'll observe for the first few days and then you'll start helping with changing nappies, doing the feeds, putting them down for bed, waking them up in the morning and what have you. Because we were quite close to Christmas, uh, and also because our little boy had a, a sister on the way in January, they wanted to speed that introduction period up for us. So we had five days uh, where we okay. went to sort of help with, with foster mom, where our little boy had, had been since birth. So he'd only ever had one foster family. We're very lucky in that sense. Amazing foster family as well. So we, we had five days of, of going around, helping out with feeds, helping out with getting to know him getting him familiar with us because obviously lockdown he's not used to having strange faces around him social groups and clubs and activities and then he came home to live with us just before christmas it's a pretty good christmas then it right? was it was amazing because obviously we usually have quite big family christmases and lockdown was making that impossible for us this year and so we, we weren't sure really what to expect for christmas anyway we'd already had the failed match in september so it was like oh 
what they thought we were going to have happen on the 25th. And as luck would have it, the little guy was home, I think it was around about yeah, 7th of December, he came home to us. So we, you know, he got to put up, we got to put up the first tree with him and put all the presents under there. And he was quite an early walker, so he was already toddling around and very much into everything. And it, it was nice. I was going to say, he is a very early walker. Yeah. Um, he is stomping around the house and switching on your washing machine. I've seen constantly keeping me on my toes. Yeah, constantly, uh, which has been amazing. Like he came to us and was sort of holding on to furniture. And within two weeks, he was walking and, and running around with these little grippy socks that we got him for the laminate flooring. So, yeah, amazing <laughs> stuff. Uh, but we had a we had a good sort of five weeks or so where it was just the three of us over Christmas and New Year, um, and then his his little sister, fraternal sister, so same same birth parents, um, she was born beginning of January and, and came home from hospital two days old into our care straight to your home, right? Yeah, that in itself was a whole different experience because as any any parent will tell you, no child comes with instruction, but our son did he he came with a routine he came with this is what time his bedtime is this is when he'll have his lunch this is when he'll have his midday nap this is what he does eat this is what he doesn't eat this is his character so you almost have like a a ready-made child so to speak a ready-made personality and then to go from that to here's this tiny little china doll and the first time you meet them you you basically have them in a bassinet and you've got to put them in the car seat that's the first time you're holding them is put them in the car seat. that sounds terrifying it's terrifying because you're at the front of the maternity ward and it's very limited you know you can only be there for two minutes and everyone's around social workers are watching it was mad um her, her big brother was in the next car seat sort of what on earth's going on like sort of thing looking at you it was a very panicky initial uh, meeting but then we got home and it was four of us and it was it's just been amazing amazing so that's step number four and christmas uh <laughs> complete yeah. uh in very quick succession yeah. and step one two three and four for baby number two kind of <laughs> yeah tick. so we, she she was sort of our newborn um and we just had the benefit of of having her big brother with us first and like I say it was it was very much expedited because we had a short introduction period, but he settled in so well, so quickly. And a lot of that was down to the, the work that his foster family had done with him. But yeah, it, it was it was a mad six weeks, put it that way. It was really crazy watching you and your husband go from being a single couple to a a one-child family to a two-child family in the space of, well, months. Is it it common for things to go so quickly? Or is this a really rare edge case for you guys? Um, No, it it does tend to, because as I say, as as everything's going on with your prep training, they will try and start to line up a a lot of those um, next, next steps. Because what they don't want is for you, you feel like prep training takes forever at the time. It's so you know it's it's nine months, but it feels like all you're doing is waiting for the next appointment, the next update, the next meeting, the next interview. And when it does happen, it just snowballs so fast. It makes your head spin. Um, when I think back to the prep training now, that wasn't forever at all. But now we're currently sort of waiting for court dates so that we can move from being a foster placement to the adoptive parents. Um, so we're sort of sat in this little limbo bit at the moment, waiting for court dates in June. Because right now you're the foster parents, and then um, hopefully at some point yeah. in the next 
uh, I don't know, 12 months or so, you'll move on to them being the adoptive uh, parents yeah. of the children, right? So, so yeah, typ- typically with foster for adopt, you are classed as foster parents for about three months um, because they are usually placed with you at birth. As, as our little lad had, we are that foster family for our little girl until their adoption order is placed. We're technically the little boy's second foster family, but the idea has been, or you know, all along we will sort of be the parents at, at the end of yeah. this. We're just sort of in this transitional period, and this prevents them going to more foster families and and sort of being in the system longer. They're they're now sort of with their forever home, um, and what you tend to get as well, something we should mention with foster for adopt placements is these are the cases that are. Um, other than on paper, all pretty much guaranteed to be the children that are placed with you for for life. They they tend to sort of put children for foster for adopt if they know that there are other family members that are going to come forward to sort of look after the children on on the birth side of things, or if this is sort of the first child that's that's sort of been placed from from birth family. They are sort of the ones where historically this has happened before. So our two children actually have three older siblings all of which were sort of removed at various points of their life uh, from the birth family so they they know that this is sort of a a pattern that's going to sort of continue i think the latest uh, studies show there's between a four and ten percent chance that they go back to birth families but only in very rare cases so we, we spoke to one couple who they had foster for adopt placement with their little boy for about six months and just before they got there adoption order and match a birth grandmother came forward from australia who didn't know anything about these children and she stepped forward and said i you know like to, to take care of my grandson and they had to rehabilitate back so you have to take that risk into account when you do foster for adopt it's not sort of a oh we want a younger kid and all the caveats that come with it there is a risk involved in that if somebody if something does happen we'll be tied you have to be able to facilitate them going back into their birth family and to sort of almost play yeah. the role that, that our little boys' foster parents did in you know, welcoming them into the home and sort of this is their, climatizing them to their routines and, and getting them used to who they're going to go, go on to live with. But I guess this is all part of the child coming first. Yeah. And if the, if the social services feel like the child would be better suited to be in an environment yeah. with a biological... Um, grandparent for example in this case i guess that's that's what happens i suppose Um, but it does sound like a really uh a hefty uh, event but i guess this is why you have all this training for exactly um, yeah and the support from the social workers yeah and and they they will constantly sort of you know reinforce the fact that you are uh, intended to be their forever home but that you must sort of bear in mind that there's always this very slight risk that an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, or even a sibling, an older sibling can come forward and say that they'd like to, to be granted the custody instead. Uh, yeah. What are the common reasons that the child in the UK is put up for adoption? Most common, unfortunately, is sort of abuse of alcohol and drugs. So um, a lot of the time it's parents that aren't capable of looking after their children, whether that's emotionally capable, mentally capable, physically capable. Um, and we're not sort of talking it's it's a difficult one that a lot of people and a lot of our training was around dealing with children that are withdrawing so babies that have have come from birth parents who have been using heroin for example 
Mm-hmm. So much of your training is around sort of, you know, withdrawal symptoms and, and how to sort of care for newborns that may be going through that. And also, like say, al- alcohol, so fetal alcohol syndrome. There's loads and loads and loads of cases where you are having to almost rehabilitate a child before you get to sort of have the the typical, atypical sort of parenting experience. We, again, were very lucky in that neither parent uh, neither birth parents for our kids were using. So a lot of the time it can also be around sort of emotional capabilities. So, you know, are they emotionally able to, to raise a child? You don't tend to get many relinquished babies in the UK. So the the ultimate sort of unicorn of, of adoptive cases are that you get a, a child that's been relinquished because a parent has carried them, but they, they have no intention of, of keeping them or have no ability to sort of keep them. Um, and that happens very, very rarely com- compared to a lot of these other sort of cases where, where abuse has been involved. What you're describing here, this unicorn, is probably the case of adoption which people listening are most familiar with yeah. because this is the adoption we see in soap operas yep. and movies and dramas. Yeah, and this is sort of the whole sort of, like say, sort of fantasy around adoption is that you are you're taking these children from somebody who has willingly handed them over and... A lot of your training is having to sort of deal with the fact that birth parents are not the bad bad guys. Um, in more cases, birth parents don't want their children to be taken away, um, but it's happening because they aren't responsible or able to be responsible for their children or be able to put their children's needs first and foremost, which is which is the big one for us. Um, so, a lot of um, a lot of sort of historical adoption, you know, again, looking at sort of media and um, entertainment is that people find out miraculously that they were adopted in their 40s and 50s. That doesn't really happen anymore because adoption is celebrated and recognised and, you know, you're taught to bring your children up to know that they are adopted and to know why they were adopted and to have a working history of their birth family. Um, And it's not sort of hidden from them in any way whatsoever um, and even within the last 10 years that the, the sort of approach and attitude to adoption and, and how you raise your kids that are adopted has completely changed um, straight cis couples obviously it's way easier to sort of perhaps pass that one off um, yeah. but in the case of like me and Jimmy um, Jimmy looks terrible in a skirt so I don't think he'd be able to get away with being <laughs> the uh, the mommy for, for too long um, and it, it, you go through sort of a lot of the prep training helps you to sort of come around to this idea as to why it's important children know about their, their sort of birth background and their their story. It's their story at the end of the day. You know, it is their story. They own it. Yeah. And um, you don't like as the adoptive parents or the birth parents, um, you don't have a right to deny a child. No access to their story i suppose is what i'm trying to say exactly and and like I say a lot of it is around it sounds cliche but celebrating that so we we've got countless scrapbooks that we're putting together with like photos and, and information and anecdotes um so that when they get to an age that they want to ask the questions or look at it themselves we've got that available and it's not this sort of i don't know that happened when you were with your foster mom i can't tell you anything that happened before you were nine months old Um, which, you know, day to day, I very rarely ask my mum, what was I doing at five months? (laughs) But you you tend to find adoptive and fostered children 
have these questions because they want to have that sense of identity. They want to know who they are, where they come from. Yeah, they're going to explore identity in a much more intimate and complex yeah. way than people who live with um, their birth parents, yeah. I can imagine. So, yeah, I think it's important they have access to this information, and especially from our British society, which is quite stiff, upper lip. Faced, yeah. We don't talk about taboo stuff. Yeah. We, you know, we just ignore the elephant in the room. That's just how things are. Um, so it sounds like quite a big cultural shift as well. Um, and it's 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 yeah. an eye opener, like I say, going through the training. It, it's not like school where you're sort of sat there going, oh, when, when's this when's this session over? You are actively, I mean, you're actively engaged because you want to go and be the best parents possible anyway. You want to pass panel. You want to sort of prove yourself worthy. But it's also an eye-opener in that you do have a preconceived sort of attitude or idea, certainly, as to what adoption is and what adoptive families look like prior to going on the training yourself. And you're actually an adoptive parent. So if anyone needs to know this information, it's it's you. Um, it, it's it's fascinating. Okay, so you're integrated now as as a family. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, let's let's go through uh, people who you come to contact with, and I think the most important people is your family. Yeah. How did your family? respond to you becoming a father um it's all been positive i mean again you know they've been there since i was babysitting looking at helping with childcare within my own family anyway with sort of brothers nieces nephews so they they've always seen that natural sort of paternal ability there i suppose so everyone knew it was coming everyone knew it was something i wanted to do and had sort of pined for over pretty much 10 years so i think they were just really glad a that it happened b that i'd actually found somebody who wanted the exact same thing in jimmy i mean my family absolutely love and adore my husband so very lucky again in that sense um, and likewise his family you know were, were really really made up that sort of the the youngest webster son as he is um, is also having kids now so yeah it's it's been phenomenally supportive all round on both sides and when it comes to work um you're incredibly lucky you work for uh, a company which offers like a really really um generous amount of leave right for adoption yeah i mean um so i work for vodafone uk and parental leave across the board certainly from march this year again has been very generous Uh, as an adoptive parent i get 12 months leave and any sort of you know in the UK, mums, birth mums tend to have like 12 months off themselves for maternity cover. Um, as of sort of March, Vodafone have also adopted that birth dads as well can have up to 16 weeks off, sort of paid maternity leave. And when I go back to work, I can also sort of re- go back on sort of reduced hours. I've sort of paid 100% of my wage, but only do 80% of my hours. So I can, you know, I can work that around childcare. Certainly That's as, really great, as yeah. Younger. So I've, I've been very, very lucky with that. Will you know what an office looks like by the end of this? Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was home working sort of March to November anyway, so uh, I'm, I'm hoping I'm back, given the nature of my work is sort of covering events and, and running around with a camera. I'm hoping I've got something a bit more exciting to go back to once, once COVID-19 shifts. I hope so. So shout out to Vodafone. Maybe I need to go back to my old employer if I ever decide to to have children to get that uh, that inclusive leave policy. This message was not sponsored by yeah. This message was not sponsored by my uh, employees. It's it's. I think it's just something that is obviously 
it does vary, not only country to country, but also business to business. And not everybody has yeah. afforded the same same amount of leave. I've got self-employed friends who you know have have children and are sort of back to work two weeks later after giving birth themselves. So uh, massive hats off to them. Hats off to anyone who actually gives birth to a child and goes back to work because yeah, I've not had to carry and birth a child. And I think I've had, had to do that on top of everything we're doing already. I'd have gone a bit doolally by now. Yeah. Okay, I, I've, something that you guys do, which completely um, caught me off guard because I didn't even know this happened in adoption. Again, because we only know about these unicorn cases, uh, stereotypically, is the rights of the birth parents to see their children during the foster process, right? Maybe maybe it has a, be- a better name than what I've just given. Yeah, so um, court mandates um, what's called contact for, for birth parents and their children. As long as it's deemed safe for the child, then they will have monitored contact with their birth parents, uh, which usually typically takes place at sort of a, a children's centre. And that only happens up until they are adopted. So, yeah, the, the birth parents have a court-mandated right to uh, see their children under supervised visits at the, the children's centre. And that happens up until they are adopted. So because we are, as I say, still in this fostering placement, we have to facilitate those visits. Now, during lockdown, um, whilst birth mum was still pregnant with our daughter, we facilitated that by doing WhatsApp video calls, um, which isn't something that typically is done because normally the some of the foster to adopt parents are usually granted some form of anonymity from from birth parents because they come from all sorts of different backgrounds. There can be all sorts of risk factors involved. Because of our case, we deemed that it would be okay for us to sort of host these video WhatsApp calls, and it meant that they still got to sort of see um, our you know, our little boy um, on, on video once a week. Once um, the little girl was born, um, birth parents were comfortable sort of attending the, the contact centre. So we initially, the idea was to sort of drop them off um, and then pick them up an hour and a half later after they've mm-hmm. sort of had this contact and the social worker sits in and records and notes everything, all the interactions that go on. So it's all very sort of monitored and very safe. You have to almost accept and deal with the fact that, you know, one, one day these are going to be your kids. They, they already feel like your kids anyway, as soon as they've come home to you, because you are setting yourselves up to be their parents. Um, even though we're sort of labeled as a foster parent right now, we are, we are going to be their adoptive parents. So, we, we don't sort of switch from foster mode to adoption mode. Um, and you have to sort of drop them off with this knowledge that they're going to be spending time with their birth family. And you've got to sort of turn yourself off emotionally from worrying and thinking what what's happened, um, what's going to happen, are they okay? It's it's hard. It's, it's certainly from, from talking to other adoptive families, they're the hardest part for a lot of people is being contact because it's just something you've got to do tough because it's it's in the child's best interest if we are of that sort of four to ten percent where children have to go back to their birth families they need to sort of have a, a working relationship with, with their birth parents um so that's what the form of you know one of the main so that's what contact is for. yeah one of the main sort of aims of contact is to maintain that relationship uh, in our case, um, because our little boy is so young, and because you know he'd gone through lockdown, not actually meeting them in person, he got very um, upset 
a little bit emotional. So we, I actually volunteered to sit in on the contact sessions, which is very unorthodox. Um, but I sort of said, you know, I wasn't going to involve myself or intrude. It was just to help reassure him and, and let him know that he was okay and I was there still. And to make it a better experience, not only for him, but also for birth parents, because, you know, in all intents and purposes, now a case, they, they wanted to keep their children and they don't want to have an hour and a half of them just sort of crying and being upset. So you have to sort of think selflessly and be there for your kid, uh, regardless of how emotionally difficult it is for you to watch them interact and play with their birth parents, um, knowing that you are sort of setting yourself up almost to sort of be looking after them instead. Um, so we're, we're doing that at the moment um, for an hour a week at the contact centre. Um, they've now got to a point where he's happy to be in their company without me being there. So I've now been able to sort of step back and just do the drop step off. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, which yeah. Is, it, you know you still have that what's going on, but we get to see the notes after each um, visit. Anyway, we get details as to you know what they did, what they, what they played with, what sort of interactions they had, and that's that's generally been positive and. In future, we're going to be able to talk to him about these sort of things, both of them, because they're both going to contact. We can sort of say, you know, you spent time with your birth parents once a week and you played with them and there's opportunity for there to be photos as well. Um, and when the adoption order, you know, once we're granted an adoption order, they'll have sort of a goodbye contact and that's when a lot of photos and stuff will be able to sort of be taken so they can put them into their memory books and we can sh share yeah. that information with them. After they're adopted, um, we run a what's called postbox in the UK. So at least once a year, you write uh, a letter that will just cover the very basics just to sort of get in touch with parents and, and possibly grandparents and siblings just to say, you know, this, this is their favourite food. This is their favourite subject at school. They're doing really well in certain things. Um, they love football. They hate spinach. Just very sort of uh, non-identifiable things. Um, and if they, the little child wants to sort of draw a picture for their birth parent, they can do. Um, the main aim is not to sort of hide the fact that they're adopted and that these people are out there. Um, it's to sort of show that you are working on maintaining that relationship. And sometimes birth parents don't reciprocate. Um, you know, ideal world birth parents would write letters back and there'd be this correspondence that, that then when they reach 18 they can sort of look at these letters to and forth in a lot of cases unfortunately it's very one-sided so when they get to 18 if they can see that their adoptive parents you know their, their forever family have been writing these letters to to try and maintain that contact even if they've not had anything come back in we can see that at least we're not trying to sort of withhold them from that relationship no, you're not trying to cover or break that bond exactly that exactly yeah you're trying to facilitate it it's a hard pill to swallow because you, you have to sort of change your mind from thinking about these birth parents as the bad guys regardless of what each individual case is because it can be all sorts of different things that have, have caused the children to end up going into fostering or adoption and you have to sort of almost think from the child's point of view what will they want to know when they get to an age of 18 or, or before that about their identity and and, and any questions they may have about their birth family, because the more you hide or lie about that, the more they'll sort of make up their own mind as to what that might look like. Before we wrap up, do you have any advice for people like myself, people listening when it comes to adoption or looking into the options for parenthood? Um, be receptive to all the information, advice, 
any sort of in, information and education you can around adoption. It, it's something that's constantly evolving. So things that happened 20, 10, five years ago don't necessarily always relate to what's happening now. But the, the most uh, important thing we've been able to tap into is the experience of a lot of our friends, family, and, and sort of contacts that have gone through adoption processes themselves, either as parents or children. And again, when, once you start to sort of put out there that you are looking to adopt, you get so many people come forward to say, I was adopted, actually, or we've adopted, and this this is our story. Listen to those stories. Get as many of those different stories as you can, because they, they vary so much, and you learn from every single one of them. So what's next for your family, then? Um, so we have court dates pending for um, final hearing on the adoption order on both, both of our kids. Um, at some point after 1st of June. So 1st of June is actually mine and my husband's second wedding anniversary. So we'll we'll probably be putting celebrations aside for uh, for court dates. But once the adoption order is granted, um, we'll be we'll be celebrating with an adoption day, uh, making up for a lot of lockdown restrictions that 2020 and 2021 you know started off with, and having a, a massive blowout. Uh, to make up for all the birthdays and, and anniversaries and goodness knows what we've missed just to sort of welcome two two new children officially and legally into the That sounds great. Ben, thank you so much for your time. And I wish you all the best for the adoption process. Um I'm sure you'll you'll keep me updated Absolutely. on how that goes. But uh just yeah, uh, all the best with that for yourself and your husband, Jimmy, and of course your two beautiful children. Um thank you so much for your time. No, thank you for having me. It's been absolutely awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Talking to Ben kind of felt like a full circle moment. I have known Ben for more than five years now, and he's the first queer person I met who wanted to become a parent and actually became one, and I'm so happy it worked out for him. In a way, Ben and Jimmy represent the life I expected I could have in the Netherlands. If I chose to become a father, the more I learned from him, the more confusing the Dutch system seemed to be. I can't help but wonder why the Netherlands has such a low adoption rate. What's so different here? What is it that the Netherlands does right that the UK does wrong? Or what is it that the UK does right, but the Netherlands does wrong? Or are these questions even sufficient enough to explain the difference between these two countries? While I don't have the answers right now, we'll be exploring adoption a lot more on the show in the future, in the hopes of getting more answers on how adoption works around the world. This is the last queer parenting story of the season. And it feels really weird saying that nine months on from when I first started producing the show. However, we're not completely done yet. Next week, I'll be sitting back down with my partner, Kevin, to discuss all we've learned and wrap up season one. Until then, my name is Connor James, and you've been listening to The Daddy Issue. Daddy Issue is an independent podcast, produced and presented by me, Connor James. 
Music by Willem de Boy. Fact checking and editorial support from Emma Vocht. Our original artwork is by the incredible K Toys. And a special thanks this week goes to Ben for his time and his husband Jimmy for keeping the kids busy while I interviewed him. We're available on Instagram at the Daddy Issue Pod, Twitter at Daddy Issue Pod, and you can find us on Facebook too by searching for the Daddy Issue.